Whew, that's a mouthful. That's because the Apostle Paul was quite wordy. He's basically talking about his calling. He's saying that I've been called to preach the gospel. But in just saying that, he doesn't just say that, he says this like long statement about what he's been given to do. All right, so his job. And in that, he makes a statement about the gospel. Notice that in verse 2. He's talking about the faith that we have in the Lord, in his salvation, and in the truth that, that lines up with godliness. That basically, the, he's saying that, um, that we walk according to the truth of God, uh, and we walk a certain way, walk in godliness. And he says that it's in hope, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. He's saying that we walk in this with the hope that we're going to receive eternal life. That one day, Jesus is going to return, and we're going to live with God forever. Now, eternal life isn't just uh, living a long, long time. It doesn't mean that. It's talking about living with Jesus forever. It's talking about a quality of life, living life eternal in the kingdom of God with Christ. But notice what he says here. This is the hope that we have. The hope that we have is eternal life. And he says, which God who cannot lie, that's a big phrase right there, right? So God made a promise, and it's the one thing it's impossible for God to do. He can't lie. He, whatever he says is absolute truth. Whenever he makes a promise, he sticks to it. I mean, even if God were to make a promise to you, and then right afterwards say, oh, why did I do that? Which he never would do, but say hypothetically, right? Oh, man, why did I promise Michelle that? He'd have to stick to it because he can't deny himself. He's absolutely faithful, which means he can't lie. But obviously we know that God wouldn't do that, right? God, we know that God, whatever promise God made, he wants to do and he will do. But the point is that he literally cannot deny himself. He cannot lie. But notice what it says here. We live with the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Right? Just stop and think about that for a second. God is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He has no age. He has no youth. He is God. He's the eternal, everlasting God. He is the sovereign God, which means the source of all things. He is the God who spoke the world into existence. There was a point at which time began and this creation started because He determined to create human beings in His image to bless us and to, he wanted to have relationship with us for all eternity. And it says right here that before time even began, which means before he created, before he ever created anything, he made a promise. Now, we weren't around, so who do you make the promise to? That's interesting, isn't it? Now, I mean, you could say, well, he made the promise to us. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, really, it, the promise is, if you will, secondarily to us. But we weren't even around. Who did he make the promise to? He made it to his son. He made it to his son, Jesus, to himself, right? But to Jesus, the only begotten son of God, the word who became flesh. Psalm 2 says this. Psalm 2 says that the father said to the son, today, or he says, you are my son, Today I have begotten you. And he says, the father said to the son, ask of me for the nations and I will give them to you as your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Hebrews chapter 1 says that God decided to make Jesus, his only son, the heir of all things. Colossians chapter 1 says all things were made by him and for him. By him and for him. So before the world was ever created, God made a decision. To make you for his son Jesus. Before the world ever began, God made a promise a promise to give the nations to Jesus as his inheritance, which that means it's for his glory, right? 
but our benefit. Eternal life was already promised, was already the determined plan of God before He ever even created the world. He created you to live with Him forever. He made you, the Bible says, to be Jesus' daily delight. You are the treasure that's hidden in a field that Jesus came and gave everything for to purchase you. You are the pearl of great price that Jesus sells everything to purchase. You are the joy set before Jesus. You are the reason He created everything. Everything. He made the universe so that He could have a relationship with you. Because He wants to enjoy you and you to enjoy Him forever. That was what He purposed. See, that's why when human beings sinned, right? When human beings sinned, God didn't destroy us. Because before time ever began, He had already chosen and covenanted in love, in faithful love, He determined to love you forever. That's how committed God is to you and me, that before you were even created, God had already determined to love you, that no matter what humanity would do, God would redeem it and bring forth His purpose on the earth, eternal life. Absolutely faithful. I don't know about you and me, I don't know about you, but like, you know, Adam and Eve sinned, what? I do all this for you? Man, I'm starting, I'm just, I'm going to another planet, you know? I'll just make a new, make some new people or something like that, right? He didn't, did he? He didn't. When we rebelled against God, when we sinned against God, when we believed lies about God, and we continue to do so, right? When we pollute His world, with lies and wickedness, and we rebel against God, He still remains faithful, doesn't He? He has not left this planet. He has not abandoned you or me. He has not destroyed us. Look, He is the sovereign God. He can do whatever He wants. If He didn't want you to exist, poof, you're gone, right? If He didn't want to create you, you wouldn't be. You only exist, the Bible says, all things exist because according to His will. He wills it to exist. And the Bible says He holds the universe together by the power of His Word. That means that every moment, He is sustaining the world with the power of His Word. And why does He continue to do that? Why has He not just said, Oh, I'm done with you people. Why has He not done that? Because He is utterly patient, infinitely patient completely faithful, so much that he made a promise to his son, and secondarily to us, eternal life in Christ Jesus, right? The Bible says he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. He determined to give a people to his son Jesus, as Jesus' inheritance. He determined that this world would find its greatest fulfillment in the revelation of his son Jesus, that Jesus would be king, Jesus would be the leader of the nations, and bring this world to its greatest fulfillment and your life to its greatest fulfillment. He determined that. And when we sinned against God, He determined to bring redemption to restore this world. You know, it's sadly, some people think that because God is sovereign, that, that means like He's making us choose things. There's a, there's a huge difference between God being sovereign and him somehow being a puppet master, making you or Adam and Eve sin. That, that is an absolute uh, humanistic philosophy that's a fallacy. It's imported into the Bible. The reality is that you and I are absolutely responsible for our sin. God is not just sovereign, he's also faithful. He's not just sovereign, he's also just. Romans 5 says that through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and death spread to all men because all sinned. We 
have rebelled against God. We have sinned against God because we have believed lies from the enemy. And that is what has brought death into this world. That is what has brought brokenness into this world. See, just because God's redemption is so amazing, right? Just because God has determined eternal life for us and made this promise does not mean that he is the one who purposed us to sin. The Bible never says that God like, made that choice. Just because redemption is better than even creation does not mean that God intended there to be sin. If I, uh, you know, if my son, you know, steals the keys of my car and goes and wrecks the car, and then I get the car and I fix the car, and I make it better than new, did I make him go take the car and crash it? No, am I responsible for his choice? No. See, there, oftentimes people get this confused. God is not the one who broke, broke the car, right? He's the one who fixes it. Redemption makes things better than new. Oh, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that God intended us to sin. <clears throat> but here we are. We've sinned against the Lord. Right? Through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin. When Adam and Eve fell, God determined to bring redemption. Through whom? Jesus. You know, it's not a coincidence that the one for whom everything was made is the one that gives his life as a sacrifice for our sin. The whole Old Testament, God is revealing himself. Right? It's his story, this unfolding plan. Every single prophecy in the Old Testament points to Jesus. Every single thing that happens in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of what was going to come. The tabernacle, the sacrificial system, all the prophecies kept pointing to Jesus. The very law itself is said to be a shadow, Jesus being the fulfillment. Remember Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, not to replace it. I came to fulfill it. The law itself was a shadow of the fulfillment in Christ Jesus. Everything that God was doing in the nation of Israel through the Jewish people, pointing towards the Messiah, the Savior, that would bring in fulfillment of what God is wanting to do on the earth. So everything in the Old Testament was pointing to this. The law itself was meant to show us that we had sin and that there is hope that God is going to bring a cure. The sacrificial system, the tabernacle, all of it was to show us that the, the way has not been made fully completed yet. Right? There was a veil that separated people from the Holy of Holies and only the, the priests could go in there with blood. And the law itself, all these laws were to show us that we fall short and this veil was to show us that we don't have access yet. And all of it was pointing forward. One day, one day, one will come and make a new and everlasting covenant. One day, one day, the just shall be made right by faith, right? One day, all these prophecies, hundreds of prophecies. So that when Jesus came and he fulfills these prophecies, he brings into fulfillment the desire of God's heart. He brings to fulfillment the promise that God made to us, eternal life. So that in Ephesians 3, it says that God, through Christ, accomplished his eternal purpose. That it was through, what, through sending his son Jesus that he would fulfill this promise. <clears throat> Listen to this in uh, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, the author says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for whom, <clears throat> for, I'm sorry, for him, for whom all, are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So Jesus, literally, the eternal Son of God, the Word, became flesh, became a human being. Hebrews 2 says He shared in our flesh and our blood. That He had to become a human being so that He could bear our sin in His body. And so He could give us His righteousness. 
Literally, it says right here that he tasted death for everyone. So sin entered the world through Adam. Jesus had to become a human being to take, taste death for us. His death was to then be a substitution for all of us, right? That he died our death. He bore our sin. So listen, when he rose from the dead, he provided for us eternal life. He rose from the dead to usher us into the life that God had always intended us to have. See, he had to die for us to deal with the issue of our sin, the very thing that was keeping us from a relationship with God. And he purchased us with his own blood, ransoming us from hell, ransoming us from the enemy, and bringing us into a relationship with God, right? Reconciling us. He had to pay this price and to taste death for all of us to free us from death. Why, though? So that he could, through his resurrection, usher us into eternal life. Literally, it says, notice that it says in verse 10, for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, there it is again, all things were created for Jesus, and by whom are all things, everything was created through him, Father God created everything through Jesus, in bringing many sons to glory. That's what he did. When he rose from the grave, and any person who puts their trust in the Lord is made a son or daughter of God, and he literally, Jesus, brings people into the glory of God. He brings us into what we were intended for. You and I were created to live, to be saturated in the glory of God, in the presence of God. We were created to be connected to God and to live with that kind of quality of eternal life forever. And it's through Jesus' death and his resurrection that he literally ushers us into this. And it's only in Jesus. I love what 1 Corinthians 15 says, starting in verse 20. It says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. He's the firstborn from the dead, but not the only one. He's called the first fruits. First fruits is always the beginning of a harvest, right? Remember Jesus even said it himself, if the seed stays alive, it stays by itself, but he said the seed has to die, fall to the ground, so that it can produce harvest. He was talking about his own self. He said, if I don't die, this metaphor of a seed falling into the ground to produce a tree that would produce fruit, he says, if the seed doesn't fall into the ground, I'm sorry, translate the metaphor, he says, if I don't die, I stay alone. That's it. But is that why God created the world? So God could be alone forever? No. No. God, I mean, he's not like he's lonely or needy or anything, but he chose us for relationship with himself. He loves us. Jesus came for this, right? This is why you were created. This is why Jesus died, because he wants a relationship with us. So he literally says, if, if I don't die, I don't get my inheritance. That's why he said to the Father in Gethsemane, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Well, there was no other way. There was no other way for Jesus to get his inheritance, for God to fulfill his promise, than Jesus to die, to bear our sin, and to die our death, so that we could have eternal life. There's no other way. He loves you and I so much that he'd be willing to do that. And he knew that would happen from before time began. He knew he'd lay down his life for this. That's how much he loves us. And he's not, he didn't die for you and then rise again so that you could live like on some other world while he lives over here, you know. He wants to be with you forever. Like I love that we sing that song, right? Like, like uh, we sing to, you know, to, you know, glory to God forever and all that. And uh, it's an awesome song. Or sometimes we'll sing, like, I am yours. Uh, love came down, set me free. Love came down and rescued me. I am yours forever. I'm yours. Forever. Think about that for a second. Forever. Forever. Let's just, mm, I think we could probably uh, think, like, 100 years from now. Think about that, 100 years from now. Think about 200 years from now. 500 years from now. Can you kind of calculate that out in your brain? Think about what that would look like, feel like. 10,000 years from now, you, if you are in Christ, you will never die. So, well, my physical body will die. Yeah, absolutely. Until Jesus returns, physical bodies will die. But your spirit will never die. Why? Because Jesus said himself, I am the resurrection and life. If he's living in you, you have life. 
That's what it means here. It says, for now Christ has risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Listen, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Jesus had to become a human being to take our death upon himself, but he had to become a human being so that he could rise from the dead as a human being so that you and I, as human beings who put their trust in him, would have eternal life, would rise from the dead. You realize how much Jesus gave up so that you and I could be one with him? He wants to spend eternity with you for so much that he was willing to become a human being die for our sin, and rise from the grave a human being. Forever, Jesus has scars. Forever, he is God in human flesh, sitting at the right hand of the throne of God the Father. Forever, he chose to become a human being so that he could be one with you. Ephesians chapter 5 says he did this so he could be one with you. Forever. Cannot fathom the sacrifice that he made. I cannot fathom the love that drove him to this. I cannot fathom his faithfulness or his patience. You realize that Titus chapter 1, where it says that he made a promise before time began, you realize that that promise is what frames human history. That promise, his, deter- his desire for you. And his determination to love humanity, human beings, and to give the nations to Jesus' inheritance, that love and that promise, that is what is leading, or I should say say more, guiding all of human history to its intended end. This whole thing began because God loves and created for his son Jesus so that you and I could know him. And this whole thing is coming to a completion when Jesus returns and we will live with him forever. All of human history is framed by that promise. God is absolutely sovereign. He's the one directing these things, right? He's bringing everything to completion. It says that he's directing everything to the purpose of his will, by the purpose of his will. And it doesn't mean that like, he makes bad things happen. Not at all. It means that in the midst of our choices, he's bringing redemption and nobody can stop him to do whatever he wants. He won't violate human will. You know that just because God is sovereign doesn't mean he gets everything he wants. You know that? All over the Bible, he does not get what he wants. First Timothy 2, he wills that everyone would be saved and none would perish. Jesus actually wept over Jerusalem and said, How long I have willed to gather you to myself like a, like a mother hen gathers, but you were not willing. God is sovereign, but that doesn't mean he did not create other wills. He chose that. But one thing he will do is this. He promised the nations to his son. He promised that people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation would come to know him. He can't, he's not, he can't make people believe in him. That's why we've been waiting for 2,000 years. Because he continues to draw people, woo them by his Holy Spirit. Until they come home. That's how patient he is. But I want you to understand, this whole time, you and I have been waiting for the return of Jesus, which is what we're longing for, waiting for. What we're waiting for is for the nations to come home. Because Jesus says that until the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, to all the nations, the end will not come. Second Peter 3 says that he's patient with us, not willing that anyone should perish. So literally, his promise of eternal life to Jesus and to us is framing human history. It's what defines who we are. Does it make sense? It, it defines 
what God is doing on the earth. And it def- that means it defines your life. It defines your identity. It defines your destiny, your purpose, your mission in life. If everything was created for Jesus, then your life only finds meaning in Christ and in following Him as your Lord. You were made to follow Him. It's why if Jesus isn't Lord, something else becomes Lord. But only under His Lordship is there true freedom. When people abandon the Lordship of Jesus or other things, it brings bondage into their life, destruction into this world. This world will only find its complete wholeness and its complete fulfillment, and you and I will only find our wholeness and our completion in Christ, not until He returns to reign on this earth. So it says here, back to 1 Corinthians 15, that He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, because of our connection to Adam, because we've all sinned, we inherited death. But it says, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. You are no longer, those of you who have put your trust in Jesus, through faith, you've come into Christ. You're no longer in Adam. You're no longer in the flesh. The Bible says that Jesus has put to death your old man been crucified to the cross. You're no longer in the flesh, the Bible says. You're no longer in Adam. Why is that? See, because when Jesus came, when He came, He is the resurrection of life, isn't He? He is the King of God's kingdom, isn't He? So when He came, the kingdom came. When He came, eternal life came. When He came, light came. Life came. And when you put your trust in Him and you came into Christ, he, you died to that old world. You died to the broken system, to sin, to bondage to sin, to death, to demonic bondage and to lies and deception. You died to that. You were literally, you were now connected with Christ. So that the Bible says, as He is, so you are in this world. Not as He was, but as He is, so you are in this world. If He's alive, you're alive. Because His Spirit is living in you. That's what Romans 8 is talking about when it says this. He says, but you are not in the flesh, verse 9, Romans 8, verse 9, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So what happened is when you put your trust in the Lord, he resurrected your spirit. You've already, you've already undergone a resurrection. Eternal life has come inside of you because his spirit is living inside of you. That's why it says your spirit is alive because of righteousness. He took your sin, he gave you his righteousness, and the spirit of the living God Life itself is dwelling inside of you. He's given you life again, which has always been his purpose, right? But your physical bodies, our physical bodies, still continue to suffer. Our, our world is still fallen, broken, until Jesus returns. And that's why it says that the Spirit of God who dwells in you will raise your body from the dead when Jesus returns. So back to 1 Corinthians 15, he says, he says, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits, meaning that he's risen from the dead, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then the end comes when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. So we're waiting and we're longing for the return of Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection was not the end of the story. Just the end of one volume and the beginning of another. You and I are literally living. Well, think of it this way. If the death and resurrection of Jesus are, are not, is not the end of the story, right? Then you and I are still waiting for part three to be released in theaters. No, I'm just joking. You got what I'm saying, right? You and I are still like, oh, I can't wait till the next one comes out. Right? 
We all love stories, right? We love epic stories, and we're longing for the completion of that story. And every good story has a climax and a resolution. Yeah, the the cross and the resurrection is a climax and a resolution. It is true. There was tension. He died, he rose again, he conquered death. He's brought the kingdom in. He's fulfilled every promise so that we have eternal life. But he hasn't fulfilled every promise completely. Isn't that interesting, right? The kingdom has come, but not in full. We are resurrected, but not all of us. We're still waiting. That's who we are. We're waiting. We're those who are waiting for the return of Christ. So that it says that at his coming, when he returns, our bodies will be resurrected and we will live in that eternal life forever. Now we've already tasted it though. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. The Bible says in Romans 8 that we already have the first fruits of the Spirit. We already have that deposit, the Holy Spirit, who is heaven, who is life, who is Christ, living inside of us. We already have tasted, the Bible says, of the powers of the age to come. We're already living with the kingdom of God breaking in and shining in upon us, which is why we can experience the blessings and the promises of God and victory and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's why we can experience that in part. And yet we're longing for the fulfillment, right? We're longing for His return because until He returns, this world will continue to groan It'll be keeping tornadoes and earthquakes and such. Until he returns, our physical bodies will continue to deteriorate. Until he returns, the nations will continue to rage against God. Now, at the same time, the gospel is spreading to the ends of the earth. In fact, what's amazing in Revelation chapter 7, it, it describes people from every tribe, language, and nation dressed in white, And John says, who are these? Or the angel asks him, and they're having this dialogue. And it says that these are the ones that came out of the great tribulation. The greatest persecution that will ever happen has not yet happened yet because the Antichrist has not been revealed. Okay? We'll go into that another day. The Antichrist has not been revealed yet. We have not experienced the greatest persecution that will happen for about three and a half years on this earth. And it says that people from every tribe tongue, language, and nation will stand before the throne of God. They've come out of the great tribulation. Now, there's a, lot, there's a lot of other verses I can bring here, but just think about that for a second. That means that at the same time, nations are raging against God, and the Antichrist is going to come. It's going to get kind of bad, you know. Kind of bad. That's a euphemism. Do you realize that at the same time, that means that there will be a world saturated with Christ followers who have not seen, but believe. And who are filled with the Spirit, so that all over the world, in every tribal group, every family group, they will love Jesus so much that they will not love their life, even unto the death. They will give themselves for His kingdom. The Bible does say there will be a great falling away, you know, before the return of Christ and all this. The Bible also says that there will be those, the elect, will be patient till the end. And if the gospel has to go to the ends of the earth, and Jesus is going to get his inheritance, you see what I'm saying? That means that darkness is, is increasing, but so is light. It means that this world, though broken and fallen, is being filled with the glory of God, is being filled with the light of God through people coming to know Jesus. In the end, in that, those final days before Jesus' return, there will be people on this earth who will not compromise who will love the Lord no matter what. Amen? Because he's worth it. Because he's so worth it, why? Because it, everything was created for him. He's so worth it because why would we ever s- compromise if just a little bit of suffering ushers me, ushers you into eternal life where we're blessed forever. We need perspective, don't we? No matter what you're going through, no matter what temptation you're struggling with, no matter what persecution the church might face, no matter what your year was like, do you realize what I'm talking about here? We need to be connected to this reality all the time. 
Because no matter what you went through this year, you might have had your best year. You might have had your worst year. You might have just gone through a lot of hard stuff. You might be having a good day or a bad day. But listen, no matter all of that, the glory of God outshines everything. Because no matter what, you and I are destined for eternity if we put our trust in Jesus. Amen? Destined for glory. Nothing can compare to that. Paul says, man, whatever sufferings we're going through are like a little feather compared to the weight of glory. He's comparing this like little feather to like, boom, you know, big, lots of gold. You know, that's what he's comparing it to. He's saying, weight of glory. Nothing can compare to what we're going to receive. See, listen to this in Revelation 21. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is what happens when the kingdom comes in full. A new heaven, a new earth. He's going to restore this world. You're literally living in your home right now. We're not going to go to heaven to go home. No, this is your home, just not restored yet. You're waiting for him to give you this world as your inheritance. So he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, which is basically the, the old passed away, the new was completely restored. And there's a new heaven and new earth, and he says, uh, for the first, earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city in the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes, he's talking about somebody being faithful even to death, even in the midst of temptation and such. He who overcomes will, shall inherit all things, and I will be his God and he shall be my son. Son, not necessarily gender specific. Listen, and he or she will inherit all things. Remember we always say all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus? Oh, amen, they're available now. But not until he returns will they be completely fulfilled. You will inherit everything that God has ever determined. But listen, listen, that's what he decided to do before time began. See, when God talks about eternal life, he's talking about that. He's talking about when Jesus reigns, He's talking about the quality of life when you enjoy the work of your own hands. We're going to serve the Lord for all eternity. We're going to reign with Christ. And, and you reign, you, you rule by serving, right? Serving others. We're going to bear the image of God completely. We're going to love God and love one another fully. Every promise of God and everything He ever determined and everything He ever desired is going to be completed. Every command, every promise, everything ever written in the Bible will be fulfilled. Remember I just said earlier, Jesus came to fulfill the law? Well, He fulfilled it by dying and rising, and He is fulfilling it by you walking in the Spirit, and He produces His character in you, and you start to love like Jesus loves. That's Him fulfilling the law. It's not about rules and rituals anymore. It's about Him producing the love of God in your heart. But it will not be fully fulfilled until he reigns on earth and everything operates on the law of his love. And every promise fulfilled and we're literally living saturated in the glory of God. No death, no sorrow, no pain. And he redeems everything that was broken. Everything that was lost, he restores. That, that is the end of the story. Now, I mean, it's really the beginning. But you, you see what I'm saying? So we're literally living, okay, so if you can imagine, we're living between the cross and the resurrection. I mean, we're living between, if you will, Jesus' resurrection, the first resurrection, and our resurrection. We're living in between. We're called the in-betweeners. We're living in the time when the kingdom has come but not in full, and it's increasing on the earth. We are citizens of heaven. We are the sons of the kingdom. Jesus, remember Jesus describes that parable of wheat and tares, wheat and weeds growing at the same time? He told us that story so we would understand, look, you guys are the sons of the kingdom. He calls the wheat the sons of the kingdom. What does that mean? It means that we are of the kingdom. We've been born into the kingdom. We're sons and daughters of the kingdom. We're citizens of heaven. We're on the earth right now, bearing the fruit of the kingdom right now. Why is there still bad stuff happening in the world? Because there's still weeds. 
And that wheat and that, those weeds will grow until the Bible says, and Jesus said, until I return. Until I come back, that's going to happen. And then there'll be a time where he, he takes the weeds and he throws them into the fire and he separates the righteous from the wicked, those who choose not to bow to his leadership, and he has to remove that stuff so that he can establish things in perfection, so he can restore all things. We're that wheat. We're the inbreaking of his kingdom, right? That's what he's wanting to do. He's wanting to produce the fruit of his spirit through you. He's wanting his kingdom to come through you. That's, that's who we are. That's why we're called already a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5 says we're a new creation. It means literally a new cosmos. The new world, the new heaven and earth has already begun. It's breaking into us by Jesus producing his life and his righteousness and his character and his will on the earth through us. Think about it. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom is where his will is done. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When you and I accept Jesus as Lord and we walk in the Spirit, he produces his kingdom through us by getting his will done on earth. This is who we are. So easy to forget, isn't it? So easy to forget. We need to remember. We need to remember that everything was created for Him. We need to remember that your life and my life will find its greatest meaning and fulfillment only when He returns. That's why Jesus' parables, many of His parables about the return of Christ, He had to do with servants who were taking care of a house until the Master came back. The whole point was to be faithful stewards of someone else's property because that someone's coming back and we need to be ready to give an account. I mean, being ready for the return of Christ isn't just being aware that it's, it's right, it's, it can happen any moment, right? That's, that, that is part of it. But in light of that, it's being faithful with whatever he's given us. A lot of times I know, sometimes people can be afraid, like, am I really ready for the return of Christ? The question is, are you being faithful? You're ready if you're being faithful with what he's telling you to do right now. I mean, it doesn't have to be very much more complicated from that, right? And that's a, maybe a whole other message. But if you are walking in the Spirit and listening to Jesus and following his leadership, and you're stewarding faithfully the things that he's given you, then you're ready for his return. But that's the point. You and I will stand before the Lord and give an account. You and I are preparing for eternity. What Jesus is doing on the earth is preparing a bride for himself. What Jesus is doing on the earth is drawing people to himself. That's what he's doing. So if we're not seeking first the kingdom, if we're faithfully stewarding what he's calling us to do, what are we doing, right? What are we living for? You see what I'm saying? That what, everything I'm just talking to you about, this defines who you are. You are the ones that he made. He created you because he loves you. You are the ones that he died for because he wants you. And you are the ones that he's coming back for because he wants you. And we, this defines our destiny, doesn't it? We were made for eternal life. Not for anything less. Not for anything less. Does that make sense? Some of you might feel that you're not worthy for God's love. No, 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 no. It didn't begin with you. He chose you before the creation of the world. He promised eternal life in Jesus to you. And it really has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with you. And that's also why he died, so that he could give to you eternal life by his grace, by his own righteous merits. But even more than that, your destiny. It's far bigger than like have a nice job or be able to pay my bills or something. And I'm all for like, hey, work hard and receive blessings here on this life and even pass on an inheritance to my kids here in this world. I mean, that's wonderful. God calls us to that kind of thing as faithful stewards. That's part of faithfully stewarding. Okay? What I'm saying is all of that is eclipsed by the reality he's returning. So if we're not, if we're not, in everything we do, in every work, and all of our work and all of our relationships, we're not stewarding the kingdom. And so much more than that. Did you hear what it said in Titus 1? Bring it all the way back there real quick. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. See, God's promise is the basis for our hope. The reason why we have hope is because we know He will do what He said. Does that make sense? Hope Hope and faith are interrelated in that regard. Hope has to do with what you can't see. I don't see Jesus yet, 
and I don't see the eternal life fully fulfilled, but we know He's going to do it. But why? Why are we confident? Because of His promise. Hebrews 6 says that that hope rooted in His promise is like an anchor for our souls. So what I'm saying is no matter what you're going through, if we can reconnect constantly to the reality of God, not only does it remind me who I am and my destiny and my mission, but do you realize that's why I can rejoice? Because no matter what I lose in this life, I will have it restored. And I believe it can be restored in this life, you know, because we have authority in Jesus' name. So I'm not trying to say, like, your only hope is, you know, years and years from now. No, there's victory, there's freedom now. But do you realize what I'm saying is no matter what you're going through, we have a reason to be thankful, don't we? Because we only exist because He loves us. We have such an inheritance that we're waiting for, right? And that brings us to, to communion. In 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to end there, we're going to take communion right now. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The Last Supper was the fulfillment of Passover. And it was the meal of the new covenant. And he says, don't just do it. Don't just eat bread and drink, you know, wine or juice or whatever. He says, says, he says, he says do it. When you do it, do it in remembrance of me. Meaning that when we eat this bread, we're remembering him. We're remembering things that I just preached to you about. Remembering his love and his faithfulness and his promises and and his sacrifice. We're remembering him, right? Who he is. We're doing it in remembrance. We're doing it in remembrance of the covenant that he's made by his own blood. But this is an interesting phrase. I love this in verse 26, what Paul says. So first he was just telling us what Jesus said, right? And then he makes this comment, if you will, on the Last Supper. What we take every, what we, what we do to remember Jesus. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink, this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Interesting. Every time we're eating and drinking, taking communion, we're proclaiming his death until he comes. Communion, it's the meal of heaven. It's the meal of the citizens of heaven. It's what people eat who are on a pilgrimage who are on a journey. Communion is one of, and maybe one of the most important things Jesus has given to us, to remember and connect our hearts to the story. We're witnesses of the resurrection, Acts 1 says. Why? Because anyone who has been resurrected, who has tasted of the resurrection, the power of God in us, is a witness of Christ's resurrection. You may not have seen Jesus physically resurrected, but you were a witness of the resurrection because of what he's done in you. Every time we eat of the body and blood of Jesus, the bread and the wine, we are remembering him and proclaiming that he died. It's an act of worship, yes, but it's an act of prophecy because we're proclaiming we are those who are waiting for fulfillment. Did you know even communion will have the greatest fulfillment when he returns? Jesus actually said, I'm not going to eat or drink this meal until it's fulfilled in the kingdom. And he meant by that the kingdom, he meant when he returns. Revelation 19 is of the wedding feast when we're eating this meal with Jesus. I don't know exactly how that, what that means, but if I take Jesus' words literally, it means that literally he has not, he ate the Passover about 33 times in his young years, I mean his years on earth. And he has not eaten the Passover as a Jewish man, right? He's not eaten the Passover for 2,000 years. He's longing for the fulfillment of that meal. But what is he actually asking us to do? He's saying, do this in remembrance of me because one day I'm coming back. 
and the, this meal will be completely fulfilled. See, communion is connecting to God. It's a fellowship meal, and it's connecting to one another, and it's remembering. What I want to encourage you to do is, we don't just need to do this once a year, you know, like, okay, cool, Dave reminded us, it's 2014. We don't just need to do this like once a week, like go to church. Although that's why we do come to church, we remember, that's why we worship. Man, I don't know about you, but I need to do this like every day. I need to reconnect myself to the Lord and to the story like constantly. A lot of times what I'll do is I'll take like one aspect of the story or one aspect of God's character and I'll just meditate on it and sing it to the Lord and worship the Lord. Maybe for a day, maybe for a week, maybe longer. And what I'll do is I'll fixate on one aspect of the kingdom. It's one of the ways that it actually fuels my worship, my daily time with God, and it kind of inspires me to take on because there's so many beautiful dynamics to the story that if you'll just like focus on creation, for example, I'll, I'll focus on the cross. I'm going to focus on his return, or I'm going to focus on this promise, or I'm going to focus on this aspect of his character. It will, it will, it will reconnect your heart to him. Does that make sense? And even if, maybe, it, maybe it's three times a day. You know, maybe it's a minute every couple hours, or maybe it's once a day you're spending time in the word and you're praying and you're worshiping, but we need to be a people who, the Bible says in Psalm 84 this way. It says, it says blessed are those whose strength is in God, who have set their heart on a pilgrimage. Does that make sense? Like, set my heart. It's really what worship and meditation is about. That's what, that's what reading the Word is about. It's connecting myself to the reality of what God is doing in me. And, and remember this, that the Bible says that He will finish what He started in you. So literally, everything that you're longing for God to complete, your purpose, maybe character, you want freedom from sin, He will finish it. He will fulfill it. He will finish it. You will be complete when He returns. If He didn't, He'd be a liar. The Bible says that he will sanctify you, spirit, soul, and body. He will do it because he is faithful. Again, he can't lie. He's promised to finish what he started in you personally as well as restore the whole world. He can't not, he can't lose, okay? He can't lose. He will do this. See, that's our hope, amen? See? And because he promised it and we believe his promises, we have that hope. And it's that hope that causes us to surrender. It's that hope that causes us to rejoice. All right? So let's remember. Kurt, lead us in communion. having some ushers pass around uh, the elements this morning, which is a little something different than we usually do. We're going to invite you to actually also do something different with us. Could you get into groups of like three or five, no more than five and no fewer than three? (laughs) 